in the towns where we live, it's expected that we'll give full devotion to our jobs, to our investment portfolios, to our kids' sports and ACT prep, but when it comes to religion, most around us are happy to kind of go through the motions. Here at Norsa, we've named this as a core value because by pursuing full devotion, we're going after something countercultural. We are aiming to give our full devotion to Christ, which means that every other pursuit in our lives becomes a way to live out that first and ultimate priority. Today's passage about marriage belongs nestled under that heading, I think, full devotion. Refusing to do even something as private, so to speak, as marriage in our own way, opting instead to relate to our spouses in a way that reflects our ultimate allegiance to Christ. Uh, So that's what we'll be considering today, and we want to have that in mind. And, and parents, just as a heads up, you know, because of the topics in this, period, uh, in this passage, marriage and sex, uh, there will be some sensitive things discussed. want to make sure everybody understands that. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Ever been at someone's house for a meal and found a spoon like this? Might be hard to see in the back, but there's something unique about this spoon. Can you see it? There's a hole in it right there. Um, I'll admit that I've never had this experience personally. I imagine it's a pretty highbrow event where you'd have to navigate one of these, but it would be frustrating if you're trying to feed yourself soup with a spoon like this. Even using it to scoop sugar from the sugar bowl, no good. Uh, anybody know what the spoon is? Somebody does. It's an olive spoon, apparently. Uh, I would not have known that on my own. Uh, It holds the olive while letting the juices run out, right? So an olive spoon with its hole would be extremely frustrating to use unless you know what it's for. And that analogy can be applied to any number of aspects of our Christian lives. What's a job for? What's a friend for? Sam Alberry uses the analogy of an olive spoon to raise the question of whether we're using sex for what it's intended for. But that analogy also certainly applies to the topic of our text today, which is marriage. Would you say that you know what marriage is for? Does it ever feel frustrating, like a spoon with a hole in it that seems to utterly fail at what you had hoped a spoon would achieve? Maybe we've missed what marriage was for in the first place. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is page 1014 if you're using the Bible in the chair back in front of you. Some here this morning have been peeking ahead and looking forward to this passage since September when we opened up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Others maybe have been dreading it. Cards on the table, I've felt a big mixture of both anticipation and trepidation as, the, as this one loomed ahead of us. 1 Corinthians 7 is a minefield in some ways. It's been misused, yet there's, there's gold here. It fits nicely into our focus on healthy relationships during these late months of 2023. 1 Corinthians has directed our attention to look at several sorts of relationships so far. Today's chapter talks about both marriage relationships and about healthy relationships for those who aren't presently married. But the parts addressed to married folk and parts addressed to unmarried folk are kind of interwoven together throughout the chapter. So here's how we're going to approach it. We're going to take two passes at this chapter in consecutive weeks. Preach the same chapter twice in a row. 
Next week, we'll work through this chapter, chapter 7, with a focus on the parts addressed to those who are single or divorced or widowed or considering marriage, to the unmarried, in other words. Today, we look at the parts of the chapter addressed to people who are already married. Uh, And here's how I want to keep us on track today. In this passage, we are warned against falling into four pairs of ditches. And on each of these four questions, there's a miss for married folk over here on this side, but react too far to this miss and swing to the other side, and there's a miss over here as well, right? So there's four sets of these ditches in this chapter as the Apostle Paul wades delicately into these issues with pastoral wisdom. So we'll walk through these four sets of ditches that married folks face, and we'll do our best then to lay out what's the path of faithfulness between the two ditches in each case. Uh, jump right in. First question for married folks, should we stop having sex? Question was raised in Corinth. Ditch number one on this side would be, well, some might say the holiest married Christians will stop having sex. That's what some of the Corinthians apparently were teaching. Take a look with me. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now in response to the matters you wrote about, so Paul's addressing things that they've written to him about. Here's one thing they've said. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, after we learned last chapter that some of the Corinthians had a wide-open, anything-goes attitude towards sex, it may seem unexpected now to learn that others in Corinth were teaching no sex even within marriage. But opposite extremes often pop up together in unhealthy churches, and it seems like that's what's happened here. And it's not hard to imagine the argument that these teachers would have been making they might have said well sex is worldly it's fleshly it distracts from spiritual matters christian marriages should move beyond sex to a higher plane of spiritual existence it's good for a man not to touch a woman literally speaking or good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman on some level we can imagine the apostle paul being empathetic to this argument right after all he himself is single celibate He's going to say in verse 7, I wish everybody were as I am. But he responds actually with emphatic opposition to this more ascetic approach. Look at what he says in verses 2 and following. Uh, He cites what they're saying. And then he says, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. The thrust here against those of the Corinthians who are advocating that married people stop having sex is, Paul says, if you're married, you should be having sex with each other. Verse 2 is literally, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband, which means, it doesn't mean each single man or woman should seek to get married. That's not what it means. It means... Each man or woman who is already married should be having sex with his own wife or with, his own, with her own husband. Right. Some who haven't studied the Bible imagine the Bible to be prudish 
or anti-sex, but this, is, this passage is just one of many decisive blows against that argument. The Bible actively commands married couples to be sexually active. We aren't taking it too far to say that apart from extreme extenuating circumstances, it's sin for a married couple capable of having sex to stop having sex. Look again at verse 5. Do not deprive one another. And if you do take some time off, fine, but come together again. In other words, we Christians don't have to get married, but if we do get married, we do have to have sex with our spouses. Now, some pastors take this emphatic tone of Paul's instruction here as license to deliver these shock value sermons going on and on about the more sex, the better. Let me tell you, me and my wife. But do you notice the opposite ditch that's suggested here? Some might say married Christians must never refrain from sex. I don't see Paul saying that here. Here it is in verse 5. He gives a possible reason why you would abstain for a time. He says, don't deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Now let's make sure we're being clear. A break like this isn't mandated by the Apostle Paul. Nevertheless, he's bringing up one good reason for a married couple to take a break from sex, and that's to devote themselves to prayer. And I remember reading this verse before being married and thinking, uh, I don't get why these two are mutually exclusive. Like, why can't we spend lots of time praying together and lots of time having sex? Then we got married, and I get it, you know? <laughs> as much as we'd love to have a couple times a week where it was easy to carve out an hour to pray for each other and pray for our kids and pray for our work and pray for our neighbors and pray for the world and for decisions we're making. In real life, carving out an hour for prayer takes a Herculean effort, you know, including holding a calendar meeting like a month in advance to do it. In Corinth 2,000 years ago, we might think of it as this, you know, so different. It wasn't all that different, right? So Paul suggests, hey, I know one place you could find that hour for prayer. You could take a break from sex for a little while, and during the times when you would have been having sex, pray for each other, pray with each other, pray together instead. Even so, again, as high as that spiritual purpose is, praying together with our spouses, Paul still says, even that's not good enough reason to stop having sex for the long term. Focus on prayer for a time, but then start having sex again which is pretty astounding, ordering your priorities when you think about it. Summary, then, of what to make of these first two ditches. Uh, we might say, be sexually active in marriage, except for intentional, temporary breaks to focus on prayer. If you're in a sexless marriage at the moment, that's not what God wants for your marriage. Be patient with each other, but it's time to start whatever relational or emotional or physical healing you need to get back to a place where you're having sex again. If you're in a marriage in which you are sexually active, there's a suggestion here, not a requirement. Have you ever considered taking a break uh, to carve out some extended times of prayer? Again, not a command, but could be something the Lord wants for some of us who aren't praying together enough with our spouses. Now, so far, we've been talking mostly macro picture about whether a Christian married couple should be the sort of couple who has sex or should be the sort of couple who abstains from sex. And hopefully we've laid that one to rest. Christian married couples should be having sex. What we still haven't said much about is the micro picture. Namely, given that a Christian couple is going to be sexually active over the long term, how do they decide whether to be sexually active on any given night? 
easy to decide when both want it or when neither wants it, but how about the next time one partner wants it and the other doesn't? What then? Do you know the Bible has something to say about questions like this? Second question, which partner chooses whether we have sex? This is what verse 4 addresses. Look at that again. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband doesn't have the right over his own body, but his wife does. What any good study Bible will point out is that this verse is astoundingly reciprocal. The first half would have shocked nobody in Corinth. A wife doesn't have the right over her own body, but her husband does. Of course, the wife's body belongs to her husband, they would have said. The second half of this verse would have floored the original readers. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. A wife having the same right over her husband's body that a husband has over his wife's. Yes. And Paul even adds that in the same way to make sure we understand it's perfect reciprocity. Right? And practically speaking, that warns us into falling into two opposite ditches here. And as I frame these, I'm going to word these in terms of the partner who wants sex and the partner who doesn't want sex. I'm going to use that language. Uh, because sometimes it's the husband who wants sex while the wife isn't in the mood. But sometimes it's the wife who wants sex while the husband is in the mood. Every couple is different. And couple's sex drives fluctuate in different seasons, so uh, we're not going to overly gender this. Um, here's a ditch, though. The partner who wants sex should always get it. No. Right? Now, some say this. Before we were married, uh, before Sarah and I were married, some of us engaged guys were counseled by a pastor who claimed that in 40 years of marriage, his wife had never once turned him down. Now, when our fiancés asked the pastor's wife about this, uh, she confided in them, this is, I'm not making this up, they had a certain lamp in the living room that she would only turn on if she was sexually available on a particular day, so he wouldn't even ask her if the light was turned off. Uh, that changed our perception of his boast significantly. Um, but this is real, right? So, so say... Partner A, we'll call this person, right? Could be the husband, could be the wife. Partner A is in the mood one day. But partner B threw up earlier in the day and is really nauseous, not in the mood at all. That's the situation. What happens? Is partner B just supposed to suck it up and have sex? To go further, is partner A justified in demanding sex from partner B on the basis that we just saw it in the text. Partner A has rights over partner B's body. No. Right? That's violating the very point being made here. Partner A, which again is the partner who's in the mood, so to speak, is challenged by this passage, this verse, to realize, hey, my body, along with all its urges, is not my own. It belongs to the Lord. And as such, rights over my body and over its urges belong to my spouse. My spouse has the right over my body. And since my spouse isn't feeling well today, I can care for my spouse by submitting my body to my spouse who has rights over me and clearly isn't up for this tonight. On the flip side then, though, some will say the opposite. Some will say the partner who doesn't want sex should never give it. But that's a ditch here as well. On this understanding here, the default is that sex should only happen when both partners are eagerly craving it. If either partner isn't enthusiastically desiring it, then sex shouldn't happen. And on one level, we can understand where this comes from, right? It's a reaction against spouses, husbands especially, who have used their wives as objects for pleasure, 
made demands, disregarded their wives' desires. And so it sounds safe, maybe, to say, hey, let's not suggest that anybody should ever give sex to their spouse during a time when they're not enthusiastically into it themselves. But that's just not what we see here, right? Yes, the call to the spouse who wants sex is, hey, your body isn't your own. You may well subject your desires for the good of your spouse tonight. But the call to the spouse who doesn't want sex is, hey, your body isn't your own either. You may well subject your desires for the good of your spouse tonight. See? And when you're a newlywed, uh, you never imagine that navigating these questions would be a thing. Uh, Then as time goes on, you realize just how much of a thing this is, right? Uh, at the end of a long day of hauling kids around to various activities, knowing that a baby's likely to wake up in a few hours for a midnight snack. Sex can become a chore. Or those who've had fertility challenges know the feeling when, hey, you've been running around all day, you've been talking past each other, wires are crossed, you're not on the same page, but there's a good chance we're ovulating today, and we've been praying for a kid for years, so somehow, for the good of the marriage... And for our mutual goals, we got to find a way to have sex, even though neither feels like it. Some of you know that feeling. The world might say, that's not romantic. Or, that's forced. Or maybe even, that's oppressive. But to submit ourselves to each other in that way can be beautiful. And can be good. right? To offer sex to a spouse as a gift. Even though you're not exactly feeling 100% in the mood. Is a valid act of love and service to the Lord. Let me be very clear, though. Just like there isn't room given here in this text for the spouse who doesn't want sex to indefinitely deprive the other, there isn't any room given here for the spouse who does want sex to demand it of the other. No room for that. To try to use these verses as a weapon to get sex is completely antithetical to the rebuke of this verse that you don't have the right to your own body. To summarize what we take away from these two ditches, we might say both partners should be seeking to generously give to the other with their sexuality. For some, that giving will be, hey, I'm going to control my urges and give you the gift of a night off and to unresentfully invest in our marriage in other ways that will be meaningful to you because my body isn't mine, it's yours. For another, that giving will be, hey, I'm going to set aside my desires for what tonight would be and give you the gift of making myself fully available to you And I'm going to do so unresentfully, out of love, because my body isn't mine, it's yours. Either way, the aim is to give, not to take. Quick aside here. What's the purpose of married sex? Stepping back, right, for just two minutes. All this discussion can raise this question, why are we doing this again? Why does God care if we're sexually active or not? Traditionally, Christians have found... A few scriptural reasons for married sex. One is procreation, be fruitful and multiply, right from the beginning of the Bible. Two is companionship. All that we saw last chapter, chapter 6, is true about sex because it's designed to knit us together with another person in such a way that two people become, in in some profound way, two become one. But here's a third reason, a third purpose of married sex that we might be less comfortable with. We might call it crisis aversion. Crisis aversion. And we might cringe at this one, and a big part of me doesn't even want to name it and fear it'll be misused, but here it is in our text, verse 2 and verse 5. Verse 2, because sexual immorality is so common, 
Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And then in verse 5, come together again. Why? Well, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So while this isn't the main reason to have sex, uh, and while it doesn't provide a basis for any Christian to cheat on their spouse and blame the spouse for not being sexually generous enough, no matter how sexually frustrated you may be, you may not cheat. The Bible is comfortable naming it as a valid reason to prioritize having sex. Namely, it reduces the temptation to turn to sinful sexual outlets. None of the three that we just named, procreation, companionship, or crisis aversion, are meant to be self-focused. And that's for the same reason that marriage itself isn't self-focused. Marriage was never meant to be or supposed to be about my fulfillment as a partner in the marriage. It was always meant to be bigger than either partner, meant to be a blessing to the world, both by mirroring God's creativity in our procreation of new life and in the parable that we live out to a watching world about Christ's relationship with his church. In sex, two who are very different bodily, but nevertheless paired intentionally for each other, give themselves to each other selflessly and vulnerably. And in that, we see just a hint of Christ making himself vulnerable to selflessly give himself to the church, not just for Christ and the church to enjoy, but for the benefit of the world as well. In other words, God cares about our sex lives because the sex that we have or the sex that we don't have tells a story about God. And our sexuality either speaks truth about him or tells a lie about him. Third question, under what circumstances may we get divorced? If this is what marriage is, under what circumstances may we get divorced? Only the light topics today. <laughs> Ditch over here. It's unfortunate but permissible to leave your spouse. You say, wait, that's not a ditch. That one's stated correctly. No. Here's Paul, verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. The Christian can't leave their spouse. It's a one flesh union. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Sure, your spouse isn't the person you married 20 years ago. Let's hope not. We all better change over the course of time, right? Do you really want to be married to a 21-year-old when you're 70? You signed up to marry them knowing that they weren't going to be the person that you married, in the same way, you've learned that your spouse is wrong for you. Yes, we all marry the wrong person. There's only one who's perfect, everyone else sins, and our spouse's sin is guaranteed to grate on us. No two humans on earth are compatible. Those marriages that stay together stay together despite their inevitable incompatibility. Here's what our vows were all about. That when we grow apart, we find a way to grow back together. When we change, we find a way to love this new version of our spouse. When we have conflict, we neither withdraw or attack. We lean in. We remember what we promised. And since we know we already locked the door and threw away the key, we sit down together to figure out how we make the best of this. And there's a sense in which when you're having that conversation, your marriage is just beginning, right? Anyone can love the starry-eyed honeymoon companion who can do no wrong. And that love is a fine start, right? But it can only run so deep. It's when you've been through some stuff. When you've deeply resented each other. 
but then work through it. When you've hurt each other profoundly but found a way to forgive, then you start to know what the Bible meant when it presented marriage as a picture of the sort of love that Christ has for the church. And since that's what it is, Christians don't get divorced. Now, are there exceptions? Of course. Right? Jesus gave one, sexual immorality. Right? If your spouse cheats on you, that's an exception to this. Right? While many Christians have taken spouses back after being cheated on, especially when the cheating is persistent and the spouse is not planning to stop, Jesus does permit divorce in that case. That's an exception. But Paul's not talking here about the exceptional case. He's saying, hey, this is a situation where there's no cheating in the marriage. doesn't matter that everyone else around you in Corinth thinks it's no big deal to get a divorce. Two married Christians are not to get divorced, Paul says. Okay, but what if we're not talking about two Christians in the marriage now, right? In Corinth at this time is a common occurrence. Married couple, neither is a Christian. One of them becomes a Christian, but not the other. The one who's not a Christian thinks, this is crazy. What happened to my spouse? And so they want to leave the marriage. What then? Uh, some would say if your unbelieving spouse leaves, you have, a, you have to fight them tooth and nail to stay. But that's a miss, according to Paul here. Take a look at verses 12 to 16. Paul says, But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. In other words, you're in a mixed marriage. Don't leave your unbelieving spouse. You're not being defiled in some way by remaining married to an unbeliever. Your children aren't somehow unclean because one of their parents is an unbeliever. Those are apparently real concerns that some of the Corinthians had, and Paul puts those to rest in the verses we just read. He says, no, no, your spouse and your kids have been made holy by your believing presence in the family. Not holy like they're automatically going to heaven, but holy like the, the, the tools and dishes used by the priests in the Old Testament were holy. They're set apart for the Lord's use in some way. There's some kind of honor, some kind of blessing experienced by the spouse of a believer and by the kids of a believer, even if the believer's spouse doesn't believe. And of course, because you love your spouse, you're praying God might use you to save them. Verse 16. Not by your nagging them all the time, but as they see you pray and they watch you live and they can tell that you've got something that they wish they had. Still, you can't know if you're going to save them, right? There's a for all you know language here, right? There's no way of knowing. If you could have some certainty that they'd definitely get saved if they stayed married to you, then you'd fight with everything in you to make them stay, even if they want to leave. But since there's no way of knowing, according to these verses, then Paul says, let them leave if they want to leave you because of your Christian faith. Don't don't look for the exit door from that marriage as the Christian in the marriage. Try your best, but when it comes down to it, be at peace with letting them walk away. Summary of what we've seen here in this, on this third question. Christians stay with their spouses unless the unbelieving spouse leaves. Again, with the exceptions that are found in other, in other passages, but addressing what Paul's talking about here, apart from the exceptional situation of sexual morality, 
Christians stay with their spouses unless the unbelieving spouse leaves. Uh, one more two-minute aside feels important here. We have this strange contrast in verses 10 and 12 we just saw. Did you see that? Uh, in verse 10, Paul says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest. What's up with that? This has led folks to say, hey, see, we should be careful how much weight we place on Paul's writings about these matters. Sometimes he's just given his human opinion. He didn't intend us to be reading his advice as though it's rock solid and inerrant. But that's not what's going on here at all, actually. Um, the Lord shows up something like 42 times in 1 Corinthians. Every single one of them refers, refers specifically to Christ, to Jesus. This is the way Paul refers to Jesus. So when Paul says, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, in verse 10, what he's saying is, hey, I'm about to pass along something that Jesus himself was recorded as having taught while he was walking the earth. Like, this is straight from our Lord's mouth. Jesus said this. In contrast, when he says, I, not the Lord, say to the rest, he's saying, hey, the Lord Jesus never actually had to address this issue that I'm about to address, so he didn't say anything about this. Mixed marriages between Christians and non-Christians wasn't a thing when Jesus was walking around. But in line with everything we know about what Jesus did teach and what the rest of Scripture says, here's how to handle a mixed marriage. See? In other words, Paul's words are no less authoritative. Peter says Paul's letters are Scripture, just like the Gospels that record Jesus' words. It's just that in this passage, Paul sees fit to clarify where he's passing along Jesus' explicit teaching and where he's extrapolating Jesus' teaching to a new situation that was originally unaddressed by Jesus. See that contrast? By the way, pretty fascinating, isn't it, that most of our best insight on marriage and sex comes from two single celibate individuals in Jesus and Paul? Right. To this day, single folks among us still have, often have some of the best insights on marriage and sex. I benefited from several single writers this week in my preparation because while so many of us married folks just go through the motions, assuming it's about us, many single folks are able to step back from it and see marriage and sex as the signposts that they're meant to be, right? pointing beyond themselves to bigger, something bigger that they signify, right? and so that they can remind us of what we're supposed to be all about. Okay, one final set of ditches. Here's the question. How much energy should we devote to our spouse's concerns? Take a look at verses 32 to 35. Paul says, I want you to be without concerns or anxieties, the unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of this world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin, she's concerned about the things of the Lord, so she may be holy in both body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm not saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you. I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Um, Paul's overarching desire in these verses is that Christians would be unburdened from concerns or anxieties. Verse 32. Paul's like, I want you to have as few of those as possible so that you can be singularly devoted to the Lord as you, as you can be. Right? And next week we'll see one significant application of that. Paul's like, hey, singleness is a really great gift because of how freed up a single person is from so many married people concerns. But for this week's purposes, thinking about how people, thinking about people who already are married, there's a ditch here that I think gets corrected. Namely, in our desire not to get distracted with earthly concerns, we might think 
hey, I'm going to let my spouse fend for herself while I focus on spiritual matters. Many of the great pastors, great in quotes, pastors and writers of generations gone by fell into this ditch. Their wives couldn't stand them. They were absentee fathers. They wrote beautiful stuff about God all day, came late to the table for dinner, and quickly rushed back out to do more important ministry. They'd travel the world preaching revivals. The wife will figure it out back home. And we might wonder, maybe that's what the Apostle Paul would advocate, right? Shouldn't the Lord's work come first? But no, right? Paul seems to acknowledge here there's no way around it. Married people are going to be concerned with some of the things of this world, namely how to please their spouses, right? The married man is concerned about the things of this world. The married woman is concerned about the things of this world. And while he is saying here, I want you to be free from that, and while one way to do so is to stay single like him, if someone does get married, he does not advocate neglecting the spouse's concerns. He doesn't say, hey, the married man is tempted to be concerned about the things of this world. He says the married man is concerned about how to please his wife. He just is. That's normal. He should be to some degree, right? Elsewhere, the same Paul says the man who doesn't care for his own household is worse than an unbeliever. Putting a godly stamp on one's home and kids is a requirement for eldership. It's not okay to let your spouse fend for themselves while you focus on spiritual matters. Caring for your spouse is a spiritual matter. But on the flip side, some act as though our spouses are everything. That's not it either, because have you ever come across these shocking words in verse 29? This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. Paul says, the time is limited, so from now on, those who have wives should be as though, as though they had none. Again, this has to be tempered by everything else that we just talked about. But every Christian married couple has to be able to answer the question, in what way are we presently living as though we are unmarried? There should be an answer to that question. Sarah and I uh, haven't had the easiest marriage, I don't think. And by the way, she was consulted on everything I'm saying here. Uh, There's plenty that we would both say we've gotten wrong in our 14 plus years married. But we joke about how if there's one biblical command about marriage that we've gotten right, uh, it might be this one. Those who have spouses should live as though they have none. Year four or so, we sat down for dinner one night and realized it was our first dinner together, the two of us, in four months. We're just out there investing in people night after night. And that was before I was even in vocational ministry. I was just a high school teacher. And I'm a pretty strong introvert too, but listen, time is short, right? There are people who need love, who need encouragement, who need hope, who need the good news about Jesus. For Sarah and I, it's, it's why are we going to sit on our couch watching Netflix while there's urgent kingdom work to do? Right? Now, we watch a little Netflix, right? But our shared mindset has always been heavily influenced by the urgency of, of kingdom work. Sarah says, hey, I really think my struggling friend could use a visit this weekend. My inclination is, if at all possible, to say, go. I got the kids. I say, hey, I really think I need to take this 2 a.m. call and drive to the hospital. Sarah's inclination is, if at all possible, to say, go. I'll figure it out here. Our marriage isn't designed for us to have a great time. Our marriage was always supposed to be for a purpose outside of our marriage. And so in some ways, we should be failing to make full use of this gift for our own sake. We're only married for a moment, really, all of us. 
right? Our marriages are passing away like everything else. I hope that when our neighbors and our friends see our marriage, they simultaneously are saying two things. On one hand, they're saying, dang, Tim and Sarah really care for each other selflessly and are looking to bless each other in a refreshing way, right? Tim jumps in to serve. He doesn't complain about it. I hope they see that. But at the same time, I hope they're saying, wait, Tim and Sarah seem like they have much bigger priorities in their life than their marriage. Outside of the one night a week that they reserve for each other, they seem happy to make space for the other to go out doing stuff they're passionate about serving the other nights, right? I think that's something, it's going to work out differently in every couple, but I think that's something like what this path is supposed to look like. Engaged in our spouse's concerns, but not ruled by those earthly concerns, right? Not just leaving them to fend for themselves, but also living in some ways as though we weren't married. Big idea today is this. Marriage is a gift to be used for its intended purpose. It's a gift to be used for its intended purpose. Maybe you've been using marriage the wrong way this whole time. Like the olive spoon. that doesn't work well when you're not using it for olives. You've been using marriage as a solution for your sexual urges as a path to your own personal happiness, as a way to get this spouse of yours to help you reach your goals. No wonder it's been so frustrating. Like when you try to eat soup with an olive spoon, that's frustrating. You're asking marriage to do something it's not equipped to do. It's time to start using it for what it's intended for. Now, of course, we'll never get there unless first and foremost we accept the reality to which marriage is a pointer. Human marriage exists to be a dim reflection of the great marriage to come, the, the one between Christ and his church, right? If you've never found your place as part of Christ's bride, many of us here have been praying that you'll join that great story. Even today, we prayed for you. Right? What husband ever laid down his life for his bride after she had been nothing but unfaithful to him? But that's what our bridegroom Jesus did for us out of his unfathomable love for us so that we could be made pure made spotless, enjoying eternity and perfect intimacy with him. If you've already entered into that relationship and you're anticipating that great wedding feast, let's honor the Lord with our marriages in such a way that we use marriage for its intended purpose. Let's pray. Lord, we're imperfect people with imperfect marriages, but that's what we want. That's our prayer this morning is that the marriages in this congregation would reflect to a watching world uh, the relationship between Christ and the church, selflessly laying our lives down for each other, looking to serve, living in our marriages for a purpose beyond our marriages themselves. To the extent that we have used marriage for something other than what it was intended for, we repent, we turn from that, and we ask that you'd empower us by your Holy Spirit to move forward in a way that's honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.